Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Law Review is Raza Fumigali. She's one of the top thought leadership attorneys on the subject of Medicare secondary payer compliance, and she is the director of Medicare secondary payer compliance for Synergy Settlement Services. She's my guest on the podcast today, given her deep knowledge and experience in an area relevant to trial lawyers, the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. Rasa is an Illinois licensed attorney. Prior to joining Synergy Settlement Services, she worked as a workers' comp uh, insurance defense attorney in the Chicago area, and she has spent the last 12 years focusing her practice on Medicare secondary payer compliance issues. As the former director and vice president of MSP compliance for a national vendor, she has extensive experience in working with parties to effectuate settlements while addressing Medicare's interests in a reasonable manner. Her knowledge, experience, and passion for navigating the intricacies of the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, and that's hard to say in and of itself, supporting regulations and CMS uh, allow her to provide valuable and pragmatic guidance in all stages of settlement discussions. She's been an active member of the National MSP Network, uh, MSPN, Uh, which, ironically, I just concluded recording a presentation for trial attorneys on. So we are are both fellow members and uh, get a little geeked out about the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. Um, She's been uh, with that organization since it was formerly known as NAMSAP uh, since 2009. She's the current co-chair of the Communications Committee and former co-chair of the Liability Committee and a board member. She is a graduate of Chicago Kent College of Law. Rasa, welcome to Trial Law Review. Thank you for joining me today. Really excited that we get this opportunity to talk about a subject that's uh, near and dear to my heart and yours, the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. Thank you for inviting me, Jason. So um, before we talk a little bit about the MSP and the law stuff, uh, I know that you've got two college-aged daughters and was wondering what's been like for you during COVID with all the craziness that's gone on? You know, I've got to tell you, Jason, with having a daughter, actually my oldest daughter. One's already graduated, right? Yeah. Right. She was a senior at Washington University when COVID sent everybody home in March. So, you know, she was obviously dismayed that she couldn't participate in all the cool senior activities. But WashU did a great job with a virtual graduation. Then a year later, we actually had an in-person outdoor ceremony, which was lovely. 
And our other daughter, Gina, is she's starting her senior year now at U of I Champaign, and she was at home for a good part of, you know, the COVID situation, doing online classes. And I just, you know, was able to continue working, but I really felt for people that had a struggle with school-age children, you know, how do you work remotely when you have a seven-year-old, you know, or how do you help a special needs kid, for example, access Zoom and all these links. So I truly felt for people who had it more difficult than I did, but it has been an experience and hopefully the world will sort of right itself at some point with COVID. Yeah, I sure hope so. I, you know, I, I think, you know, I've got a daughter who's in college right now and she had her senior of high school impacted by COVID and then her freshman year of college, thankfully her sophomore year, she seems to be having more of a, the regular college experience. And my, my son too, my son was a senior when COVID hit at uh, undergraduate and, you know, wound up leaving school and never going back after spring break. It's just kind of crazy yeah, for them. Really. I, I feel bad that, you know, they've had something taken away from them because of COVID. And obviously there's been many horrible, awful things that have happened as a result of COVID, much more probably, um, you know, impactful than, than that with people dying. But you know, certainly it's tough, I think, for everybody. So, For sure. I, I think the only thing is that COVID really was sort of an equalizing factor for everybody. You know, it would have been tougher if just one school shut down. But the, the fact that everybody was kind of in the same boat, I think kind of helped with solidarity or, or making you feel like you weren't being singled out to be punished by this. Not that COVID is a punishment per se, it just hit everybody. So it has been a strange time for all of us. Yeah, for sure. So um, let's let's talk a little bit how you got your start in, in the law. What was the single biggest reason for you making the practice of law your career? Now, Jason, I wish that I had an answer like I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer, but it really was a decision where I graduated with a bachelor's degree in marketing and I wanted to get into advertising because I really love, you know, the creative commercials and all of that was very fascinating for me. And it was just really hard to kind of find a position within that field since I didn't have any internship experience. So after working a year as a women's clothing store uh, department manager, I thought, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and, I, and I, on a whim, thought, I'm going to law school. And so the great thing is that I was admitted to Chicago Kent College of Law, the only law school I applied to because they let people in in January. And I loved it. And I think part of the reason why I really liked it and enjoyed it was because I never stressed about a law school career because it was the furthest thing from my mind in undergrad. So that's kind of how I became a lawyer. Our youngest daughter, though, intends to go to law school. So we'll see how that goes. Well, like you, I, I was similar. I, I got my undergraduate degree in psychology and was not planning to go to law school. And I was talking to an advisor about what I was going to do, you know, when I was a junior uh, in college, and he said, "Well, maybe, maybe think about law school." And I was like, "Hmm, that sounds interesting." And yeah, kind of crazy, and found that when I went to law school, I absolutely loved it, and had taken some undergraduate courses too in legal studies before I went to law school. So I kind of knew that you know, this was really where I needed to to be. So very, very similar uh, to to you. So. I'll, I wanted to ask you a question that normally 
uh, you know, on the podcast, we have trial lawyers and I, I do um, end with a question about their view as a trial lawyer, but curious about your view as related to the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. Uh, what, what, what is your view? On what it's like to be an MSP lawyer or just on MSP in general? It's whatever you want to talk about as it relates Whatever to I want it to be? Yeah. This is open-ended. All this right. is your chance. Okay. So I love practicing in the area of MSP compliance. And the reason why I really enjoy it is because I love to problem solve. And so when you have situations where you have a settlement, you know, the, the liability in the case really depends on the state law. So Medicare is only a secondary payer in the sense that there's a primary payer, but a primary payer, their obligation is defined by state law. So I love the interplay between state law, the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, and the parameters of the settlement. So I think that settlement consulting and coming up with a strategic plan for how do you resolve this case in a reasonable fashion without you know, giving Medicare what really they're not entitled to, but while protecting benefits for the injury victim or for the insurance carrier. I just, I enjoy it. And in a very twisted way, I find it to be fun. I know you talked about it sort of like as, uh, like almost a chess match, like all the pieces being in, in their right spots and the strategy around that. And I, I think that's what I like about it, that, that sort of idea of, Okay, there's a lot of issues, you know, it's it's conditional payments, it's Medicare Advantage liens, it's Medicare set-asides, and then mandatory insurer reporting, and ICD codes, and, you know, all of these things that interplay with each other. So, you know, that view, viewing it that way, I think does make it quite the challenge, uh, which to me is is very interesting. Well, and I think part of the struggle sometimes is that people don't know how to play the MSP compliance game. You know, they don't realize how there's really no one set path that you have to follow. You know, the journey really depends on what you have going on in your particular case. So that game board is always the same. The game board is the MSP compliance game. But all the pieces and the strategies, they change, which is why it's really, to me, a uniquely fascinating area of law if you actually practice it correctly. So how did you wind up in that niche area of, of the Medicare Secondary Payer Act? It's it is a rather specialized area of law. So having been a workers' comp insurance defense attorney in the Chicago area, you know, whenever anybody had a case with a Medicare beneficiary, you would always have the walk down the hall in the law firm of, oh, God, you know, they're on <laughs> Medicare. Now what am I supposed to do? And one of the attorneys in the office figured out this is a hot area. This is something that she has to, you know, get into. And she was looking for people to help build the unit. And even though I really was not particularly fascinated by the field, I thought, you know what? If I figure this out, nobody else knows how to do it. I have some job security. So I kind of got into it. And once, you know, if you only dabble in Medicare secondary payer compliance, you know, you, you get it, you take care of one case, and then it's five years and 500 other cases down the road, you kind of forget about it. But once you immerse yourself into it, 
you know, I found that I really loved it for those reasons that we just discussed. It's strategic. There are ways you can sort of like drive the outcome. And I was presented the opportunity to go work for a national vendor remotely with kids that are in middle school and high school. I thought, this is great. And the rest is history. So given you're almost a decade on the other side of uh, the table working on Medicare secondary payer related issues, I thought you could offer trial lawyers a unique insight into the minds of the other side related to Medicare secondary payer compliance. Uh, so I wanted to, to talk about that. Why does the defense care about the MSP in the first place? So when we're talking about why the defense cares, it's really, it's all driven by fear. It is the insurance carrier's fear of double damages when it comes to conditional payments. It is the fear of them being hit with mandatory insurer reporting issues in terms of the potential penalties of $1,000 a day per claim, you know, per day per claim. So it's very fear driven. And the defense attorneys that are retained by the insurance carriers, you know, their policies are, are going to be dictated by how much risk or how little risk the insurance carrier is willing to take. So, you know, when I worked for, you know, the outside vendors doing the defense work, you know, their main clients were insurance carriers. So these carriers would say, we want you to address all the MSP compliance issues for our cases. And then some carriers had very sophisticated um, internal policies where when a person, you know, when they open a claim, they check, is this person on Medicare? Is this person going to be on Medicare? And they also have the obligation to do that with Section 111 queries. So the carriers kind of dictate what they want their defense attorneys to do whenever there's a case, but it is always fear-driven. It's the fear of conditional payments coming back to the carrier. It's the fear that post-settlement overpayments made by Medicare will somehow come back to the carrier and the fear of those penalties with mandatory insurer reporting issues. Yeah, it's interesting because we were, during the segment that I recorded for the MSPN annual meeting, we were talking about this kind of issue as it relates to trial lawyers and approaching it from the standpoint of, Parties need to collaborate because the defense does have some skin in the game, at least from the date of settlement backwards. So, you know, liens and whether it's conditional payments or advantage liens. But on the MSA issue, the Medicare futures issue, they really don't have a dog in that fight because there's no there's no law that would allow Medicare to go after a defendant insurer for a injury victim failing to set aside, it would be the injury victim possibly being left with no Medicare coverage. But the idea of that the defense does care about this, they are going to insist upon language in a release or, you know, uh, some kind of proof that the conditional payment has been satisfied, you know, all these things. And, and even I, I think we're headed that way with advantage plans, given that they've become very aggressive going after insurers. But this idea of making once you've once you've gotten to the settlement table and there's an agreement to settle that it should become a collaborative process of how do we address the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, talking about those issues at mediation so that ultimately 
there's not a problem, you know, um, when the release gets sent from defense to plaintiff and plaintiff goes, what is all this Medicare stuff? You know, wait, we've got to, we've got to show you that we pay the final demand before you pay us like those sorts of issues. Curious about your views as it relates to that. And if you've got some thoughts about that, the, just what that process should look like given the realities. Think you know when we're talking about where do defense like where does the defense actually have some skin in the game? I think that a lot of times they're a little bit overzealous in terms of trying to dictate what's going to happen post settlement for future injury related care, and I believe that that really kind of stems from some insurance carriers truly believing that well if Medicare makes a payment post settlement that's injury related that that is a conditional payment, but really it's not a conditional payment. It's an overpayment. And if they seek to recover, it's going to be by, you know, withholding benefits that are due to the plaintiff or through, you know, offsetting tax returns or by denying care. So, you know, I think there's kind of an inaccurate analysis that goes on for some defense plans when it comes to post-settlement, or they just want to make sure perhaps that, you know, if they don't think that the plaintiff has been properly advised by counsel, that the plaintiff, you know, perhaps is protected by them sort of watching out for them. So when it comes to, you know, what should you be thinking about when you go to the mediation table? I think the really important thing is just because you don't like Medicare doesn't mean that you shouldn't deal with it. You know, I, you know, people sometimes stick their heads in the sand and they say, don't have to do anything. It's not workers comp. I think the important thing is that any obligation to do anything comes from the MSP Act. So my suggestions for when you're going to the mediation table, you know, is to talk about it. You know, number one, is my person on Medicare? Number two, how are we going to deal with these conditional payments? You know, if I know that I'm going to settle this case within 120 days, I'm going to go use the final conditional payment process that's available through the portal where you can actually get a final demand before. And if you don't really know what to do, well, you know, go ask somebody who does, you know, consult or retain an expert to assist you with this. And the other thing would be when it comes to futures, you know, to how much risk or how little risk the plaintiff wishes to assume that really is their decision. So even though you think I'm representing them in this negligence action or whatever it might be, the potential implications of the Medicare Secondary Payer Act are going to affect the plaintiff. You should not be the one deciding that you don't have to address this at all. So I think a proactive approach where you are also coordinating what does this case really involve in terms of mandatory insurer reporting, and just um, you know, trying to protect the plaintiff is the best approach. And that so was the, such a long answer. Oh. <laughs> you know, there were just so many different pieces there. Well, that I mean, that's the challenge of all of this for trial lawyers. The reality is, is you know, being an expert in this and understanding the nuances, like a lot of the things that you just mentioned, it, it's almost impossible it, it, unless you decide that instead of being a trial lawyer, you want to be. An MSP compliance attorney. So, I I'm curious, you know, since you spent all this time on the defense side as it relates to the MSP, kind of what you've seen typically happen 
as it relates to MSP providers advising these uh, insurers about what to do, you know, to, I, I think so trial lawyers better understand where the defense is coming from when they, you know, insist upon language in the release or insist upon, you know, proof that a final demand's been paid. What is it that, you know, these MSP providers that cater to that side typically focus on with insurers? Is it just the risk? Is it process? You know, what, what, what are those things? So what insurance carriers are concerned about, as I mentioned, it's, you know, the fear that they're somehow going to be sued by Medicare or, you know, Medicare Advantage plan, for example. So they really want to make sure that that potential exposure is closed off by putting an obligation on the plaintiff to deal with the conditional payments, to provide proof of payment, to, you know, provide, and I anticipate that with the PAID Act being, you know, fully implemented by December of this year, when adjusters are going to have information regarding which Medicare Advantage plans a plaintiff was enrolled in, they're also going to start specifically identifying an obligation that the plaintiff deal with these Medicare Advantage plans. So they really want to have like a very tight um, control over any potential exposure when it comes to conditional payments, because they also fear that if there's somehow a Medicare payment made post-settlement, that Medicare may at some point come sue them for this overpayment. I believe that they go crazy and they want you to have an MSA if there's post-settlement injury-related care. And whether they want you to do that or not really should be irrelevant because the risk of any potential issues with that post-settlement treatment falls on the plaintiff and that should be the plaintiff's informed decision to make. So I just it just kills me though when I see settlement releases where there are probably 10 paragraphs that look like they were taken out of an MSP compliance like you know legal treatise and they throw that in there and they think, ah, we're covered, we're good. Yeah, I've, I've, like you, reviewed releases many times with language that was either incorrect, overly broad, cited the wrong law, or even I've seen language where it says that the injury victim agrees to never treat for me, treat with Medicare for anything that's injury-related in the future, which is, yeah, just kind of craziness, but you know, kind of, kind of is what it is these days, which is why I, I go back to that point when I'm talking to trial lawyers about this is collaborate with the other side so that you, you can hopefully uh, come to an agreement before you get to a point where you've got a release that becomes an impediment to settling, you know? See, sometimes though collaborating with the other side is difficult if the other side doesn't really get MSP compliance. You know, if you have a situation where, you know, like insurance companies, for example, they used to have, you know, suites of settlement terms, you know, like you check this Medicare beneficiary, check this, and then it just kind of spits out provisions and paragraphs that they want their attorneys to use because they have these very generalized protocol. 
And so if you have, for example, a provision that says this person is not on Medicare, and then you have another provision that says you've got to reimburse conditional payments, I mean, that's inherently inconsistent. And then you have a defense attorney saying, send me proof that there are no conditional payments. Well, this whole discussion is ludicrous. You know, (laughs) there are never going to be conditional payments, nor can I prove there are no conditional payments when a person is not on Medicare. And truly, that query of whether they're on Medicare or not falls on the insurance carrier's responsible reporting entity. So sometimes you're having, you know, you should have a collaborative approach. It is an ideal situation if you have a defense attorney who says, you know what, I don't really get this piece. Let's let's work together. Let's talk to somebody who can kind of guide me through this. So, you know, it is challenging at times, but it's also kind of fun for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it de- definitely keeps us in business too. So what what for ultimately sure. led to you making the switch from being on the defense side to now wearing the white hat and protecting injury victims when it comes to the Medicare Secondary Payer Act? So I, you know, it was sort of a gradual thought process that has been developing over the years. You know, it all really kind of started with when I got a call when I was at the vendor from a pro se petitioner, you know, it was a worker's comp claim. They had an MSA and this guy was so upset. He's like, what does it mean? I have a rated age. It says I have six years to live. I don't want to die in six years. And my heart went out from that. You know, nobody explained to him that, you know, this doesn't mean that you're going to die in six years, you know? And I'm like, you know, only, only the universe or God knows what your last day is on earth. And so he was just so saddened. And then in dealing with the frustration of resolving conditional payments, you know, it can be such a complicated matter. And I'm an experienced MSP compliance attorney. When you think about, you know, petitioners, attorneys who don't normally do this, or a petitioner who's trying to deal with this on their own, it's a huge struggle. And, you know, really, you know, a few years ago, I was having lunch with a friend of mine, and she represents injury victims. And she's like, God, I just, you know, I mean, they would call me as their buddy to say, I don't know what to do. And she's like, we really need somebody to kind of step in and help us. So then when Synergy came knocking on my door, I thought, this is it time to go. And I have not regretted it at all. It's been a wonderful experience. So what's been your greatest learning or surprise since moving to the plaintiff side? So actually when I started out, and this is kind of a long answer, when I started out as a workers' comp attorney, the firm that I worked with, we represented injury victims and the defense. You know, we never had a conflict. And I kind of favored the defense because you're removed. You're removed from the pain. You are removed from, you know, the stress of the injury victim. You know, it's just much more clinically easy to be objective. You know, we're not really focusing on how tragic this is. We're just going to figure out what the best defense is. And, you know, it's a different way of dealing with people. And then... Now that I'm consulting with people and I, I'm just amazed at how compassionate um, the plaintiff's bar is with their clients. You know, they're representing them zealously, but I'm on these calls and, and I hear how 
you know, not, not to sound weird, but I mean, these attorneys are tender with their clients. You know, they are very protective of them and really I'm honored to answer their questions, to take, you know, there's no ridiculous question. If this is a question that is weighing on the mind of this poor injury victim, I'm glad to go over it with you 5 million times if that's what it takes, because I feel, I find it very rewarding to try to relieve the stress that these injury victims are feeling about the whole settlement process and all this. So it's really, it's been a, I should have done it years ago. It's good. So now that you've seen it from the other side and you've, you've developed the experience in working with personal injury law firms, what are the top three biggest mistakes you see plaintiff's firms making as it relates to the Medicare Secondary Payer Act? I think the top mistake that I see is just this thought of, you know, although the Medicare Secondary Payer Act says it's secondary when it comes to comp, liability, auto, and no fault. The mistake that I see is people thinking that if we don't have the ability to have Medicare review an MSA like you do in comp, we don't have to do anything. I think that is um, a very dangerous posture to take. And I think they may not necessarily realize that CMS review, even in a workers' comp case, is purely voluntary. The obligation to do anything stems from the MSP Act. And that MSP Act specifically says liability. I think the other mistake is the thought that, well, we don't have to, I don't want to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with it. And then after the settlement, after mediation, lo and behold, you know, they find out my person's on Medicare. Whoops, what do I do? And they thought conditional payments were 13000 but they're 120000 So, you know, waiting until the last minute is a huge mistake. And I think another thing that people sometimes do is they just assume that the risk is one which they should be deciding as opposed to discussing with their clients because the potential issue of post-settlement injury-related care being denied or overpaid falls on the plaintiff. Is that three? I probably have more, but I'll stop. Well, you know, you and I have talked a bit about um, this new service that Synergy has where we can do an audit of the Medicare secondary payer compliance status of a file, which sort of gets at this idea of being proactive about the Medicare Secondary Payer Act and looking at all the issues that potentially could cause a case to be delayed in terms of settlement. Can you talk a little bit about like how proactively lawyers, if they don't utilize that service, or I guess, you know, just those considerations in general, how to be prepared when you're going into a mediation so that the other side understands you've got you you've got these issues covered, you understand it, you've either outsourced to a partner like Synergy or you're you have a team internally that's done their due diligence and can demonstrate that you're you're in a posture to settle the case as it relates to the Medicare issues. So what I think, you know, in having you know, having been a practicing attorney, you know, in the defense, we would do these opinion letter analysis letters where we would kind of set out all the different potential, 
issues and what recommendations were made and you would kind of follow that as a roadmap when you were going through the case. When it comes to MSP compliance, you know, as you mentioned, we do have the compliance audit service that covers, you know, the top three points. If I were representing an injury victim, I think the first thing you should do is, you know, just kind of have a list of what is their Medicare status? Are they on Medicare now? If this case has been sitting around in your office for a couple of years, you should see at what point they might have become a Medicare beneficiary. You then have to identify conditional payments. Are we talking about traditional Medicare Part A and Part B, or is there an Advantage plan that's in there? And you should take whatever steps you could to identify what these amounts are while realizing that if it's an interim figure, you cannot rely on this. You know, So you've got the conditional payment piece that you're looking at. And then you have to think about, well, what, what is the nature of this injury? Is it one that is likely to result in post-settlement injury-related care? And that kind of is going to shape how you handle futures. You should also have a checklist of, well, what are the exact diagnosis codes or conditions that are being released in connection with the settlement? And it's helpful to have a settlement paragraph or MSP compliance template that provides you with language that you believe is appropriate, that ideally defense counsel will also embrace at the time that you're figuring it all out. I think if you have all those steps in your mind and you have the information, you can walk into a mediation confidently, you know, knowing that this settlement is not gonna be you know, delayed, we're all on the same page, and this is how you deal with this component of the case because just because you doesn't like you don't like it doesn't mean that you can ignore it uh, so are there two or three things that you could recommend a trial lawyer to do in terms of being prepared when they walk into a mediation uh, as it relates to MSP issues like for example going to the portal and getting you know the the latest conditional payment figures or you know, making sure that they understand the ICD codes that are related to the injuries that ultimately the case may settle based upon. Things that, that you know a trial lawyer can do to make sure that ultimately they're prepared to deal with these issues when the case settles at mediation. Okay, so I would first off see, you know, what sort of condition, what kind of Medicare plan the plaintiff has been enrolled in. I would also be mindful of the fact that they could have changed their coverage. They could have gone from traditional Medicare to a Medicare Advantage plan. You know, that is really important. Then I would consider, well, is this person, like, what is the settlement? Is it a completely disputed settlement where we're getting, or a catastrophic injury where there are policy limits? You know, how do I deal with the future component? So. So the, the trick, I think, is to, number one, think about MSP compliance and the potential ramifications. Two, sort out what your strategy is. If you don't know what your strategy is, consult with an expert to figure it out, and then document your file. Because heaven forbid, five years down the road, you don't want your client coming to you saying, why are they denying my treatment for this injury? You represented me. I know nothing about this. So I think that those would be you know, the main things that you need to consider. Yeah, I love the, the acronym. We, we've talked about that, that consult, advise, document, CAD, because you know, making sure that the client is aware of these issues, that they understand it because you as the lawyer have the obligation to explain legal matters uh, 
so that they understand it and can act with uh, an informed manner, either you've got to do that or you've got to have a group like Synergy that can do that, that can advise them and then documenting your file. And and one of the things that I, I talk about when I present on these issues, and you touched on it, and I think it's an important point, is making sure that as a trial lawyer, you know exactly what medical coverage is your client has had throughout their uh, post-accident treatment. So getting copies of all their insurance cards, you know, if they've got a Medicare card, if they've switched to Medicare Advantage plan, if maybe they've got military TRICARE coverage in addition, or they're a dual eligible and they got Medicare and Medicaid because so many issues that we're asked to deal with stem from that those those important pieces of information being um, you know fed to us so that we can then advise. But you know the lawyers uh, themselves who are handling these cases really need to have that process internally to make sure their team understands the importance of having all of that information and keeping it up to date and having that as a part of their process for making sure that these issues are addressed at settlement. For sure. Uh, so um, if people have MSP-related questions, what's the best way to get in touch with you, Rasa? The best way to get in touch with me would be to send an email to me at Synergy, and it's rfumagali at synergysettlements.com or to contact Synergy directly. And because I work remotely, I have to tell you, I have no idea what Synergy's phone number is. So perhaps you can share that, Jason. <laughs> I'm in my suburb, suburb of Chicago basement office. So, so help me. <laughs> it's 877-222-0422. Uh, but you can also go to SynergySettlements.com and you'll find Ross's contact information as well there. And so uh, we'll also put in the notes when we put the podcast up on the website for her contact information, as well as link to the Synergy website. And I uh, want to thank Rasa for joining me today. I enjoyed the conversation and we'll see everybody on the next Trial Law Review episode. Thank you for having me, Jason. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Law Review. You can find more at triallawreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.